the the Celtic Christian tradition um, is not kind of uh, what I would call I need a hug theology, just kind of um, floating in, in the air. It's deeply grounded uh, in the revelation of Father, Son, and Spirit. Hi there, friends. This is episode 61 of the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. My name is Matt Bruff, and I'm the host of this show. I'm also a pastor and an author. And today we have an interview with Reverend Dr. Ross Lockhart, who is uh, out of Vancouver, teaches at Vancouver School of Theology and St. Andrew's Hall. Uh, so it's a really great interview, um, but I want to give you a couple of updates before we get into that. Um because it's been a while since I've put out one of these podcasts and have been a little sporadic in getting these out over the summer. And we could just say that's about the summer months and I was away a little bit, had a couple of times of vacation, including a fantastic vacation with my family and extended some of my extended family in Disney World. Um, and we were joking, uh, you might even still hear it in my voice a little bit, uh, pretty much all of us got colds as soon as we got back. Uh, to Winnipeg um, from being in Florida in the heat. Um, and we said, well, it's probably because we were run down after running around Disney World for um, for just over a week. Uh, we were just, uh, yeah, we need, we all needed, a, we should have scheduled in a vacation after that kind of uh, breakneck vacation that we had. So, but it, we had a fantastic time and it was so great to be with family and uh, just enjoy ourselves there. Um, and I did want to sort of mention that because at one point in this interview with uh, Ross, uh, he mentions Disneyland and then mentions that I'm a fan. Um, so yeah, that's what that's about. Uh, we just had our big Disney World vacation. Uh, so that's part of it. Um, the other thing too is that I've just been working on a bunch of other projects lately. And um, one of them is, uh, well, they're all publishing projects actually. I've been helping uh, a friend with a publishing project and that's been taking up a bit of time. Um, I'm, I'm not going to tell you more about that, but uh, there'll be more to come. And I know a bunch of you, it's it's actually a, a book that a bunch of you are going to be really interested in. So um, I, it's not, it's not really my news to share. So, I, but more is coming. I will let you know about that soon. Uh, the other one is uh that I've been helping my mom uh, publish a book as well. And uh, if you've listened to this for a while, I've mentioned this a few times that I'm an independent publisher, an independent author. So I I basically have self-published and then I've kind of moved into helping others, um, a very small group of people, basically my mom and a friend of mine, uh, publish their books. So my mom's first book came out about a year ago and she's already written a follow-up to that book. Uh, it's historical fiction. So if you are interested at all, um, please reach out to me or just go and search on Amazon for Anne Bruff, uh, B-R-O-U-G-H. And her first book is called The Prussian Captain and her follow-up is called The Welsh Guardsman. And uh, it's actually based on family stories. So you, you kind of get insight into some of my uh, my grandparents and great-grandparents and, and where they came from and, and their stories. Um, so my mom's book is, is just about to come out. Um, but I've also been working on my third novel uh, called Del Rider and the Emerald Scepter. And it is uh, a fantasy adventure series for middle grade readers. So kind of ages eight and up. Um, my daughter is now eight years old. So it's kind of right in, in her 
what she would like to read. Uh, but I started the series when she was about five. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's about to come out as well. That's just uh, getting finished off. Well, actually, today, as I record this, uh, is uh, the final uh, files are going to get uploaded probably later today um, for the paperback proof to be ordered. So uh, it's kind of fun for me and exciting. Um, and I don't know if you've, some of you might have uh, gotten my other books before. And I know for most of you, that's not why you're listening to this podcast. You're listening for the interviews and kind of help in your spiritual life. Um, but it's it's kind of interesting for me because I've actually discovered a whole other side to my own personal spiritual life through writing, specifically through writing fiction. I've written other things as well. And some of you might have read Let God Be God or Let God Be Present that I've written. Um, but But the fiction side of things really surprised me in a lot of ways. Um, and these books, while they're fantasy, they're, um, there's a, there's a sense of spiritual connection in these books. Um, it's, uh, how can I explain it, um, without going into way too much detail for you? The books are, well, God kind of just showed up in the books, I guess, even in the writing of them. Um, and so they're not, it's not laden with spiritual imagery or, or religious imagery or anything like that. And really in the end, it's just a fun adventure story. Um, and I'm, I'm finding that, that kids kind of eight, nine, 10, 11, really like the book. The, the main character is a girl who's 11 years old. And so that age really love the book. And then adults also, uh, who've read it really love it. Um, if you like Narnia, if you like Lord of the Rings, th- things like that. Um, it's, it's that kind of, it's a fast paced kind of adventure fantasy book, but it's got this, these sort of these spiritual overtones. Forgiveness is really important. Um, proclamation is really important. Worship is really important, but, but it's not necessarily using those terms to talk about those concepts and themes. So, uh, it's sort of a battle of light and dark and and those kinds of things. Um, so this is the third book in the series that's coming out. And, uh, yeah, if you are interested, you can, you can go and find those, um, and uh yeah it's the Del Rider series if you just search for Del Rider I don't know that it'll just come up but if you put in Del Rider and the Crystal Seed that's book one or this latest one uh Del Rider and the Emerald Scepter so yeah wow I wasn't necessarily expecting to talk about all of that uh today but uh but there you go um that's why um there just haven't been as many podcasts because I've just been trying to focus on getting all of the edits done and getting the books done and working on these publishing projects but we're kind of nearing the end of the publishing process on all three of those projects and um yeah i'm excited to tell you about that uh i don't have absolutely official release dates yet for for all of those books um but coming soon for sure by the end of september um I think the books will be out like uh, we're just we're just putting them out there. So it's not um, there's not this long drawn out release process. Uh, so you should be able to find them really soon. Um, and if you've got questions about that, hey, you can you can always just email me. Um, feel free to to be in touch. You can always send me an email to Matt at mattbruff.com. And I'm happy to hear from you either about uh, the writing projects or just about the podcast. If you've got feedback or comments uh, of course, leaving a review on iTunes is always open to you to uh, say what you like about the podcast or anything like that. And it actually helps people find the podcast on iTunes, 
Um, not everyone knows how to do that, and um, uh, but it's actually pretty easy if you use your phone. So if you have that podcast, the just the basic podcast app, even if you don't normally use that one, but if you have that on your phone on an iPhone, um, you can just go in there, and there's a place right on that app. Like if you find the the podcast in that app, uh, just search for it by name. And there's a place in there that you can leave a, a star rating and then a review. I actually think you can even leave a rating without typing any words. So if, uh, you know, sometimes you can't think what to say, it's always fine to just say, hey, I love this podcast. It was great. Um, but if you can't think what to say, you can always just leave the star rating and you don't necessarily have to type the words in. But the words also help too. So, uh, And I do go and read those, so I really appreciate it. Uh, well, it, you know what? I haven't done a long intro in a while either. And uh, I know some people don't love the long intros, but you can always hit the skip button uh, if you want. Uh, and we do have kind of a longer interview today. So it's just going to be a longer podcast today. So I apologize for that. It may not fit in with your commute the way you had hoped it might. Um, and But I do encourage you this uh, interview with Ross. Uh, we talk about pilgrimage at the beginning, and then we move on to talk about St. Patrick and a little bit about uh, Celtic spirituality. Um, but it's really a, a lot of this is about kind of the heart of the gospel and what it means for the gospel to be incarnated in culture. So it's a fascinating conversation and how we might learn from St. Patrick and his approach to uh, speaking about Jesus and about Christianity in uh, what was a pre-Christian culture, um, how we might learn from that in now a post-Christian culture. So we talk about that. Um, and also, um, you'll pick up, there's a whole bunch of uh, Canadianisms in this, because uh, Ross and I are both actually from Winnipeg, uh, but we're both Canadian. Um, and uh, so you'll you'll pick some of those up. And at the end of this interview, um, often this happens kind of near the end of the interviews, Ross and I laugh a little bit about that and kind of point out a few of the Canadianisms that, uh, that we brought up. So if you want to hang until the end or even... Um, if you don't have time, you need to skip there. Uh, go and listen to the end of the interview because it's it's kind of fun. Um, so yeah, I, I know you're going to enjoy this, and I just love talking to Ross. He uh, um, he and I just had a lot of fun, and and he had so many great insights into um, what uh, what is needed for the faith in today's world. So hope you enjoy this interview with Ross Locker. Today on the podcast, I have uh, Dr. Ross Lockhart. Uh, it's so great to have you uh, back on the podcast today, Ross. Great to see you and uh, a joy to be back with you. I enjoy listening to your podcast very much. Yeah, you are actually my first repeat guest. Wow, that's huge. Do I get a special shirt <laughs> for that? Uh, well, we could probably make one up. I don't know. Sure. Awesome. Yes, we could get you a t-shirt or maybe a or I know actually you collect, um, some pretty interesting religious items. So yeah, they're actually just over there on the, in the far, the far corner. Oops. Over there on my, on my shelf, I have a, a dazzling array of tacky religious merchandise here at the college. <laughs> That's really good. That's um, an audio podcast. So nobody actually saw what I just saw, but that's okay. Oh, yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> that was just find a picture, and then we could post it um, <laughs> like that uh, for our listeners to see. Nice. Um, yeah, it is really good to have you uh, back on on the podcast today, and uh, we're going to talk about a couple of things. Um, 
One is uh, a new book that you have out that is around St. Patrick and also uh, kind of focuses around missional theology, which is your your thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also want to ask you about uh, pilgrimage. Um, hmm. And I know you've just recently uh, come back from a pretty, it sounds like a pretty great pilgrimage. And I know I saw some pictures, looked fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so maybe we could kind of start there just on, on what was that recent trip and, and, and uh, what was that like? Yeah, so, I mean, pilgrimage right away, we have to be careful as as Presbyterians, uh, because Papa Calvin was dead set against pilgrimages, right? And so, uh, when we look back to Geneva, uh, Calvin actually would, uh, he offered a fines or imprisonment for those going on pilgrimage. So uh, we're, we're on we're on thin ice when it comes to pilgrimage. But I think enough time has passed, and, and I think we can put it into context that uh, we when we talk pilgrimage today as Reformed Christians in 2018, we're not talking about gouging poor, illiterate pilgrims who are going to venerate bones of a supposed saint, right? Um, what we're doing is we're, we're journeying to biblical places uh, in order to uh, worship, to uh, take time for personal reflection, uh, and to, uh, to engage in uh, a process with others of going deeper with God. So um, I've led now 10 pilgrimage tours uh, to Ireland, uh, most to Israel, and then I've done three on a variation of Turkey and Greece. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, the Turkey-Greece ones are the footsteps of Paul, and that's the, the latest one that I did. I had to take most of Turkey off the itinerary this time. Two years ago when I was planning it, uh, there was such domestic uh, challenge mm-hmm. in Turkey that when you plan pilgrimage tours, you always have to weigh, you know, will people go? Do they feel safe? That kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, so we were in Athens first and then up a a domestic flight to Philippi uh, and uh, visited the biblical site of Philippi and uh, heard the story of Paul's call from Troas uh, and uh, saw Neapolis where he landed. It's a beautiful church in uh, nearby Kavala, which is the modern city of Neapolis that has this mural on the front of the church of St. Nicholas with on the one panel is uh, Paul having the dream and having the Macedonian call. And the center is the Macedonian uh, Roman-like soldier calling him. And on the uh, far left is uh, the Apostle Paul with a kind of a creepy, elongated, uh, big toe stepping off the boat for the first time, bringing the gospel to Europe. Uh, and then we, uh, we worked our way down through Thessaloniki. Uh, one of the most breathtaking stops was uh, Meteora. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site where the Greek Orthodox Church next to Mount Athos, it's the most holy site for their monasteries. And these are monasteries that were built on mountaintops, impossible mountaintops. Uh, and so, uh, you know, huge staircases to get up there. Uh, and then Athens and Corinth. And then we visited some islands, including uh, Patmos uh, and uh, Crete. Uh, we had one stop in Ephesus that doesn't really count as Turkey. People say, oh, I've been to Turkey because I was on a cruise and stopped in Ephesus. It's That's like Disneyland. You, you don't really get the, you know, if there's anything wrong with Disneyland, I know you're a fan. I am. <laughs> but, uh, 
Um, uh, yeah, and so and then back to uh, Rome. We stopped in Rome in the final stop, and and at Rome, I mean, Vatican City is big and burly, but um, we, I deliberately ended at uh, the Church of uh, Saint Paul, which uh, not many people go to. It's held by the Vatican. It's still owned on Vatican land in Rome, but quite a distance from Vatican City, okay. uh, and it's where he is um, supposedly buried. They've ex- excavated it right in the middle of this cathedral. And we had our closing worship in the chapel of St. Stephen, which was um, kind of a full circle. We began the pilgrimage with uh, the story of the, uh, the stoning of Stephen mm-hmm. and Saul's uh, ingenious coat check program that he set up. Uh, and so to come full circle was awesome. So yeah, on these I set up, um, I, I do a whole pilgrimage guidebook every day for people with morning prayer, evening prayer, Bible study, um, theological questions, places for them to write and to journal. Uh, and so it's, um, it's an opportunity for people to, uh, to go deep with God. And uh, I have found pilgrimage to be one of the most effective adult catechesis programs. Um, you can have people in Bible study for a year, and that's awesome. Or as we did, you took 35 Presbyterians away for a couple of weeks. And the intensity of the um, formation process, the conversations over dinner, um, they're deep into their scriptures. Uh, it's, it's a pretty awesome thing. I'd highly recommend it. Yeah, that's really cool. And it sounds like a lot of yours are really focused on on scripture as well as mm. the, the act of kind of moving. <laughs> um, right. And uh, I had someone on the podcast previously talking about pilgrimage, and we actually ended up talking quite a bit about walking and the power of of, of actually walking and the movement connected to uh, to our faith, and that being a metaphor for for our life of faith being this journey. Um, but also seeing biblical sites, I mean, that's that's kind of cool. Um, so yeah, that's uh, is that open to anyone who would want to go? Like it sounds like you probably have others that would be planned on the horizon as well. Yeah, uh, not at this exact moment, but I do these every two or three years, and they are they are open to everyone. I do them through the college just because that's my okay. uh, place of uh, of residence essentially these days. But it's uh, adult edu- faith education experiences. So on this on this journey, for example, we had several different. Presbyterian churches represented uh, from British Columbia, uh, from um, Saskatchewan, and from Ontario. So we just kind of gather up folks, and uh, people can be in touch with me if they're interested. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think is the uh, like? I know you're saying it's it's probably one of the most effective ways of catechesis or formation. Um, why do you think that is? Like, why is that? Is it just the intense period of time together, or is it the is it the location? Like, does that, like, what is it about the, the pilgrimage that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for the, for the biblical pilgrimages, um, you know, cause there are these, you see these advertised come with your pastor and go on a Caribbean cruise or whatever. And I, I don't want to be that guy that slags that off, but I'm going to slag it off. Right. You know, like in the sense of uh, there's, there's, there's fellowship building and that's good and that kind of thing. But um, you know, I think as teaching elders, we long for people to come alive in the word, right? That, that's just such a joy when you see people going deep with God in his word. And so, um, yes, it is. It's the fellowship. I find, too, it's, it's stage of life stuff for people. Okay. I often say on the Israel um, uh, kind of Palestinian 
areas that we visit in the West Bank and and we're all over. And we do try like on on the holy so-called Holy Land tours, I do try and give um, balance to the current political situation. I know that can be a thorny topic for people. So, you know, I go, we stay in places like Bethlehem. We have speakers from uh, Bethlehem, uh, the Bible College that cha- uh, uh, trains local ministers for Palestinian Christian communities, these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I find is that that uh, stage of life is important because people, they read scriptures if, if they've been raised in the church, they have a Sunday school faith that often progresses further, but um, the Bible comes alive for people when you're in these places. I I caution people to never, ever say you read the Bible better after being in these biblical places, because that's just arrogant and rude and also completely untrue. Some of the most impressive saints I've ever been privileged to minister to have not left small towns in Canada their whole lives, right? Um, but so you don't read it better, but I, I've actually seen with my own eyes, you read it differently once you visited biblical sites, right? So for people who have no clue whether uh, the Sea of Galilee uh, looks like Lake Manitoba or uh, Lake Ontario, uh, or, you know, they, they just, you know, it gives them perspective. So in BC here, when I take people to Israel and we come back, um, when I preach and I say things like, if you've been to Kelowna, you've been to the Sea of Galilee, and you will kind of look at you curiously, and you say, about that size lake, low arid mountains, uh, the only difference is the wine is much better in British Columbia. Yeah. So, uh, and I, for, you know, uh, research purposes, I've tried it, I can say, and right. uh, <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. So then you start, you've got a group, say, um, Worshiping God in Vancouver, and because of someone's visit to the Holy Land on a pilgrimage, you can start to teach in a way that it puts things in perspective for people. So um, the, the best book I've ever read on, on pilgrimage is uh, Maggie Dawn's The Accidental Pilgrim. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a fantastic piece of work. She teaches now at Yale. She was at Cambridge before. And um, it's just a short, 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 short three-chapter book, essentially, um, and the first chapter is funny. It's her resistance of going to Israel. She never, ever wanted to go. She said, there's going to be a gift shop everywhere I go. It's going to be yeah. tacky. Someone's going to say, this is the rock that Jesus touched, you know, that kind of thing. And it's a brilliant reflection on uh, how it, a little bit of it was that, but it was who she was going on the pilgrimage at that time. And the second chapter is motherhood and going to visit the Black Madonna in France and trying to push a buggy up a rocky path mm-hmm. uh, and being frustrated and reflecting on that stage of life. And the third was she had another pilgrimage planned, and she, um, I think she had hip surgery. Uh, and so she was confined to her armchair at home with a stack of books. Mm-hmm. And the third chapter is a reflection on the hardest pilgrimage is sitting still and going inside yourself. Uh, brilliant, brilliant piece of writing. So, yeah, I mean, pilgrimage is kind of the latest sexy thing and, and maybe a bit of a fad, but I, I find it helpful um, for uh, equipping people for their own witness. Mm-hmm. It's also been, I mean, it's kind of funny to talk about it's the latest thing and it's uh, a fad because it's been around for a really long time. Exactly. I mean, sort of yeah. what happens. Uh, <laughs> I'll definitely check out that book. That sounds really good. It, you know, the, the opening of that reminds me of... Uh, I had this aversion to short-term mission trips. Right. And, uh, thought, oh, like, does this actually do 
anything at all. Um, you know, there's, there's way better ways to help. And then I ended up going on one and uh, was converted, you know, so, um, and that's a, that's a whole, whole longer story, but now I really believe that they're, they're opportunities really for personal transformation. Um, and, and then other things, God uses them, I think, in other ways that are unexpected. Like I wouldn't have necessarily thought about pilgrimage as an opportunity for when you return to be in a better position to be able to teach or help others in their faith. I wouldn't have necessarily thought of that. Mm -hmm. Um, in the same way when we did a a mission trip, which is really more of an exposure kind of Mm -hmm. trip, um, to Malawi a number of years ago, um, out of that trip came the opportunity to encourage other people to be able to support uh, a new project that we'd helped kind of uh, establish in uh, in Malawi. And, you know, far more money was raised for that project than we spent on going there. Mm-hmm. Without us going there and seeing the need and seeing what was going on on the ground and be able to translate that for people, one like one person to another person to another person, Yes, that that just wouldn't have happened, mm-hmm. um, and, and so we kind of I think we need that. It's almost like this, um, it's like this ambassador role that we yeah. have. Um, That's right uh, to, to to do those things. Yeah, I, I mean I've heard those objections to short term mission trips as well, and and I think you know it's um, it's like you have to be clear on what the purpose is. Yeah, it would be like saying as a, as pastors, can you imagine if we have. Um, uh, committed Christians who are grandparents in our church, and we um, we give them a hard time for going for a week uh, from Winnipeg to Vancouver to visit their grandkids. Say, well, what's the point of that? You're just going a week. You're not really going to build a relationship with your grandkids. Well, that's, I mean, starting <laughs> to look for a new call at that point, right? Yeah, um, exactly. Which is this is not the same thing as saying if they move to Vancouver and live in Vancouver, they will have a different relationship with their grandkids. It'll be deeper and more meaningful. But that doesn't mean that going for a week uh, once or twice a year right. is no value. It's just different, right? It's right. a different kind of relational connection. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, can we talk, let's talk about St. Patrick a little bit. Um, hey, hey. And because uh, this, uh, this new book, what's the, what's the title of this book? It has some kind of crazy title. I know you've already uh, cautioned me that this is an audio recording. So just for your for your sake, I'll hold up the copy of the book. Um, so uh, it's called Beyond Snakes and Shamrocks. The subtitle is St. Patrick's Missional Leadership Lessons for Today. Nice. That's really mm-hmm. nice. So can you just give us a bit of a sketch of what uh, sort of what the book does? And Yeah, yeah. So um, my background ever so briefly is is my extended family... Uh, live in Northern Ireland. And so uh, I was raised in the Holy Land, as you know, of Manitoba. Uh, <laughs> there's no better place, sir. Uh, and uh, and yet I was raised in kind of that Irish-Canadian diaspora mindset, right? So home was always where our farm was in Northern Ireland. I've been back um, too many times to count. Um, now what we do is we go every uh, roughly every three years, and because there's five of us in our family and it's expensive, we do exchanges with Irish Presbyterian clergy who want to come to Vancouver for a month, blah, 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 that kind of thing. Um, so we're set to go next summer already. So over the years, what, what has interested me about St. Patrick is how misunderstood he's been. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are all these North American perceptions of Patrick as this, you know, Irish saint 
who um, uh, chased out snakes, uh, who taught people about the Trinity with the shamrock, uh, you know, who uh, endorsed drinking green beer and, and vomiting on public streets on the 17th of March, you know, these kinds of things. Right. Uh, the North American standards uh, and stereotypes, uh, all of which are untrue. So uh, as I've uh, lived with the story of Patrick over time, it's always kind of been part of my background. But as a missiologist now, as someone who teaches mission and researches mission, the, the thesis of the book, the, the thesis to be explored when I started the research and the writing is, here's the basic question, are there lessons from a missionary to a pre-Christian culture for us as missionaries to a post-Christian culture? That's the question that the book seeks to answer. And so uh, I tell... And the answer was uh, hopefully yes. <laughs> You'll have to read the book to find out. <laughs> You're going to tell us a few of them, I hope. Exactly. If the answer was no, then then it probably wouldn't get published. Yeah, that's a very good book. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, exactly. So, uh, so the way I've structured the book is um, I tell the story of Patrick in a chronological order and uh, I do kind of an ancient future thing. So I tell Patrick's story of being a missionary to a pre-Christian people. Uh, and then I pause and I reflect on what that means being a missionary to a post-Christian people in Canada in 2018. So, um, uh, you know, tell a little bit of the background of his story. Uh, the first myth is that he's not even Irish. He's Roman British, right? So born... Uh, around 387, 389, somewhere in there, uh, AD, and already born into Christendom. And so at this point, uh, Christianity is the religion, uh, official religion of the empire. His father is a deacon. His grandfather is a priest in Roman Britain. Uh, and the Roman nobles, and not particularly pious. He records by his own hand that uh, he wasn't raised in a particularly devout family, even though his grandfather was a priest. Uh, And the reason for that is uh, Roman nobles uh, had to return to Rome the tax portion of their area, and if anyone defaulted, they had to kick in the cash themselves. Mm. There was one exemption given, and that was if the Roman noble was a clergy person, then they didn't have to cough up the extra. So surprise, surprise, uh, Christendom, even in the first decades of Christendom, we see what uh, Daryl Guder would call a reductionism of the gospel. The gospel is being trimmed to fit people's political and social agenda. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, the, the big kind of... Um, uh, event, world event that shapes Patrick's life from uh, macro to micro. The macro event is the sack of Rome in 410 AD, um, not to be inflammatory, but literally kind of the 9-11 of, of that world. Uh, no one thought Rome, the eternal city, would be, would be sacked. And so 410, it's sacked. And leading up to that, the signs were so clear that the empire was failing that uh, any, any empire, any administration is going to withdraw resources from the fringe to the center in a time of crisis. And so the, the, the pivotal factor here is that the Roman navy is called home from the Irish Sea to the Mediterranean. And in that vacuum, 
uh, pirates, not not like SpongeBob SquarePants pirates or pirates of the Caribbean pirates. I know you'll be on that ride next month at Disney, uh, uh, but um, pirates from Ireland that was not called Ireland. It was called Hibernia, Latin for the ends of the earth. And why? Because uh, the Roman legions never conquered uh, the island. Uh, Roman merchants traded there. There's evidence of Roman merchants, but the military never controlled it. So pirates from there start raiding the west coast of Roman Britain. And Patrick is scooped up at age 16 and hauled off into slavery. And he is uh, kept in at least one of two locations, some argue for County Mayo in the West. And the uh, the one I go with um, that, uh, you know, it, it's debatable, but is uh, Slemish Mountain, about mm, half an hour, 45 minutes northwest of Belfast. Uh, you can still visit to this day. Um, I took my kids up there a few years ago and they were disappointed because they said, this isn't a mountain. It's like a big hill. Uh, it's like uh, Birds Hill Provincial Park. In say, they didn't grow up in Winnipeg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. That's it. And, um, and he's kept a slave. He's kept a slave there. Uh, and uh, by his own hand, he records that's when faith became real to him. Uh, he started praying prayers, 100 prayers by day and 100 prayers by night as he kept sheep on this mountain. And of course, prayer in ancient times was not a private, close your eyes, mumble, but arms raised, spoken out loud. So he's given a nickname by his fellow slaves. Uh, it's a derisive nickname of Holy Boy. <laughs> Holy Boy. And uh, he records that God begins to speak to him and his faith becomes real. And at that time, uh, after six years of slavery, uh, he hears uh, a voice from God saying, your ship is ready. And he takes that to mean that he is to flee, of course, risking his life as a runaway slave. And through all kinds of twists and turns, he makes his way back to Britain. But once home in Roman Britain, uh, there's a big, obviously a big homecoming celebration, but he is, he's restless and I actually, for a little a Manitoba content, because you got to get Manitoba content in there all the time, I quote in the book uh, Miriam Taves's uh, line from A Complicated Kindness, uh, and where she, uh, Nomi, the lead character, says uh, when her whole life has fallen apart. And uh, remember in the book where her mom takes off and then her sister takes off with the boyfriend and she's left with her depressed dad at home in Steinbach. Well, it's not Steinbach, but you and I know it's Steinbach. Um, And uh, she has this great line where she says, the only thing worse than being seasick at sea is being homesick at home. Hmm. Great line. Uh, And that's Patrick. He's home, he's safe, but he's homesick for Ireland. Mm-hmm. And he has this uh, very important kind of TSN turning point moment in his life where he has a dream where this um, so-called angel, right? And I talk about that in the book, the difference between history and hagiography. Hagiography for listeners just being the, the stories of the saints that we tell. Uh, history is your uh, actual uh, scorecard at golf. Hagiography is what you tell people you shot, right? There's kind of a difference there. Uh, And uh, so hagiography says it's an angel, but uh, I think actually it's it's a fellow Roman slave. uh, And he's been given the name Victorictus, which implies that he probably actually, Patrick, knew this guy. Uh, And he has a dream where he stands at the end of Patrick's bed, home safe in Britain, 
and dumps a sack of letters, almost like Santa's sack on Christmas Eve. And Patrick takes one and breaks the seal. And it's entitled Vox Hibernia, the call of the Irish or the call from the ends of the earth. And it's addressed to him. And how we know it's addressed to him is he's addressed as holy boy. Hmm. And the invitation is to come and minister amongst. I mean, it's the Macedonian call, right? All these saint stories have these uh, images. And so he trains in France, uh, plants in Ireland. He's not the first bishop. That's another uh, myth that he's the first Christian missionary to Ireland. It's not true. There's a guy named Palladius in 431 uh, that went before him and his uh, ministry failed. Some say history has been unkind to Palladius because uh, making him fail in a spectacular way makes Patrick look all the better. So who knows? Um, But Patrick uh, lands 433, starts uh, his ministry, has to um, uh, preach, convert, contend with Druid priests. So we go through that in the book. Um, And... um, uh, it's it's a real pleasure to kind of watch his story his story unfold uh, and uh, and wrestle with what does it mean for us today then for example one of the chapters is called Oxair so each of the chapters is a place name in his story and the chapter Oxair is a reflection on his training to be a priest and how by that period in the four twenties uh, in Christendom they had stopped training missionaries. They were only training parish priests. So he goes to study for the, for the priesthood uh, with this clear call from God to evangelize a pre-Christian people, and they don't really know what to do with them. And where, so, where was he studying? Where did oh, he sorry, study? in France. He went to France. Okay. okay. Yeah, in Auxerre in France. Yep. And, uh, and it would, there were no seminaries, but it was kind of an apprenticeship model to the bishop. Right. Uh, and, uh, and so they, um, they didn't really even know what to do with him and Palladius, his ministry failed and it was thought, well, it would be good to have someone who speaks the local language. Imagine that. Uh, and so, uh, Patrick gets tapped, uh, to go, but that's a chapter when the ancient future thing where I spend, you know, some time reflecting on, are we preparing leaders today? Um, for a church that doesn't exist, right? Or, or are we, uh, how effectively are we preparing people uh, who feel called to be missionaries to this culture, which I think all of us are. So that's, I kind of do this little play uh, throughout when it comes to uh, the different, you know, different themes. It's, um, I look at church planting, I look at confronting the powers, uh, the reality of, of evil and sin. I look at the uh, question of conversion, I look at missional ecclesiology or theology of church. I look at new monasticism, social justice, pilgrimage, those kinds of things. Wow. wow. Um, okay. So what is, uh, even just taking one of those, um, what would be a lesson that we can kind of take from, uh, from Patrick's time and then, and then try to figure out what does that look like on the ground today? Whether it's the whether it's the preparation educational piece, or maybe even just if someone's listening to this, thinking, "Well, yeah, I recognize that I that that I want to help um, people in my life understand what this faith is about, what gospel is about," but it just seems so disconnected. I don't know how to make those connections. Are there is there help for people from Patrick's story around that? Yeah, I mean, I think. Um... 
if you look at, at the chapter on conversion, which I think is, is an essential practice of the Holy Spirit that we sometimes get a little uh, touchy or antsy about, um, Patrick's been knocked sometimes for the stories that are told consistently of him cozying up to power. So when you read Patch stories about Patrick, it's always his attempts to convert uh, the kings, which were not kings like if we have a King Arthur kind of, you know, uh, it, they were chiefs, chieftains, uh, and uh, and and then there were um, high kings that simply meant they controlled larger territories. But when you look at Patrick's story, the reason that the reason that he had to do that is that the the social code of Hibernia was that there were only uh, three people who could travel freely throughout the country. There were chieftains or kings. There were poets. Uh, and there were druid priests, and so if his ministry was going to work, he had to get he always had to get permission to travel through these territories, so he would preach the gospel to chieftains, and um, sometimes they would re- receive the gospel and ask to be baptized I, I tell a story that could be true, could be apocryphal of uh, when he uh, baptizes the the high king of Munster. And uh, he's uh, baptizing him, and his uh, uh, bishop's staff slips and slices the uh, the, uh, the high king's foot, uh, and it begins to bleed. But Patrick is so caught up in the baptism uh, that he doesn't notice. Only after he's done, the king stands and hobbles away, and the servants rush in to bind his wounds. And Patrick is embarrassed. He feels terrible. He says, he calls after. He says, "King, why why didn't you tell me? I, I could have stopped. I'm so sorry." And the king just shrugs his shoulders and says, oh, I, I thought that was part of the ritual. So, uh, you know, hopefully baptism is not that painful, but conversion and baptism are central. And, and, and the trick here, I think, is for us to reflect on um, how, how are we proclaiming the gospel, um, whether or not it is received? Because there are many cases where Patrick was not received well uh, by chieftains, but they respected his boldness of proclamation. And so they allowed him through their territory that was known as a tuaf, um, through the territory uh, that allowed him to preach to others. And so, I mean, I think we're, we're, we're very cautious in 2018 as Reformed Christians in our, in our public witness. Um, and uh, part of it is a hangover from Christendom where we need to be liked by, by everyone rather than understanding ourselves as, uh, proclaiming a gospel message in a, in a mixed mixed territory of competing competing beliefs and values, uh, and so how how might we um, be courageous in our proclamation that uh, accepts that uh, no is sometimes going to be the answer? People will uh, choose not to receive the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder, is there anything analogous that? to to our own culture to those chieftains like hmm. he was patrick seems like he was strategic in figuring out okay how am i going to like what do i need to do in order to be able to engage in the mission that i've been called to yeah and i wonder if we don't really do that very much very well or very much like to try mm-hmm. to think about well what are what are the barriers or who like, where do I need to go? What do I need to do in order to figure out how those barriers can be brought down a little bit? Like, 
Mm. I don't know if it's always as simple as simply proclaiming the gospel. Mm. Or, mm. Yeah, and sorry, that, that can be a catchphrase that people think it's standing on a street corner and, and shouting right. at people about Jesus. Sure. I, I, I would normally kind of lean more towards the language of Christian witness, which is both words and works, right? So, I mean, I guess the, yeah, that's a great question. Who are the chieftains in, in our own society? I mean, I think um, part of um, part of missional witness is being able to, in a, in a really important and powerful way, exegete your neighborhood, right? Being able to, to study the neighborhood and figure out um, where people gather, uh, where power is held, how change takes place, what people value. Uh, and so, you know, I was uh, talking with someone recently who they're doing a soccer soccer camp instead of the, the traditional VBS at their church because they had done VBS for many years and numbers were declining. And they realized that they were in a community where soccer was the dominant dominant value. Uh, and so they've rejigged things. There's still Christian programming as as part of as part of this, but they've rejigged it in order to um, to access as many people as possible. Right to say this is a church thing is to limit who might actually participate. To say this is um, this is a soccer camp uh, provided by the church with some programming. People hear that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think th- I think that's good. I think it's uh, actually, in some ways, it's harder. It is harder today to kind of figure out well, what are what are the structures in our neighborhood or our community, and what would be what would be appropriate for our context? Like, what would actually not just what works, but what actually is going to be helpful for people, right? Um, whereas, okay, here you know you can only travel from point A to point B. Yeah. Uh, at the chieftain's say so, it becomes right. clear that you do have to go talk to the chief. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. you do have to go talk to the king. I noticed you use the term uh, high king, and that just struck a struck a, a note with me. It immediately made me think of the hymn Be Thou My Vision. Yeah. Um, which is a, a Irish uh Irish hymn, I believe. It is um, indeed. It has this verse High King of Heaven in it, mm-hmm. which we have a term forgotten. I just wondered if like that would be heard differently sort of in this idea of we've got kings and high kings. Um, yeah, exactly. And so, in fact, if you look uh, in the book of praise at the the tune name for, yeah. for that, it's uh, Slain, yeah. which is um, another chapter in this book that I mentioned, the Confronting Powers. Early in his ministry, um, Patrick arrives at Terra, and to this day, if you stand on the hill of Slain, you can see the Hill of Terra across the way. And uh, conveniently, the Druids had a rule that on one night of the year, only Druids could light fire. And it happened this year, so we may be more into hagiography here. Uh, it happened on this one year to coincide with Easter Eve. Mm-hmm. And so Patrick uh, lights a Paschal fire, uh, and the Druids get all worked up saying, who's that dude on that other hill lighting a fire? Uh, and they arrest Patrick and bring him to the high king. And then uh, he contends with the Druids uh, as to whose God is the real God, which, of course, we're hearing echoes of Elijah contending with the prophets of Baal, right, on Mount Carmel. I mean, it's just these biblical references are sewn into the lives of saints. Uh, and, uh, and he defeats the Druids, 
Uh, it ends better for the Druids than it does for the prophets of Baal. No, no one is uh, sliced down by the river, but uh, it, there's this conversion experience. And so to this day, uh, we still call that a Hintun Sleen for, uh, for the, the hill that he lit the fire from. So yeah, it's all, it's all interwoven. But he was very good at gospel and culture, which is something I reflect on. So you mentioned that he's able to read the culture and to say, the highest authority here is a high king. So when I'm proclaiming the God of Israel, we know in Jesus Christ, I'm going to use that language. He was extremely effective in adapting uh, models of the Roman church for the mission field. Uh, and he was highly effective at raising indigenous leaders. Hmm. So uh, he ordained a ton of priests, set up monasteries for and um, convents for men and women, uh, and uh, was uh, by the time he dies in the 460s, he's, uh, he's left behind the seeds of uh, what becomes the Irish church. Mm-hmm. So that's a chapter I have on new monasticism, and I reflect on um, uh, there's a great monastery today just uh, close to the border between uh, Southern Ireland and, and the north uh, called Monster Boyce. Mm-hmm. And Monster Boyce uh, was set up uh, Monster Boyce literally means the Monastery of St. Butte. And St. Butte was a, a pupil of uh, Irish-born pupil of Patrick that studied with Patrick, was inspired by him, and then went off and founded his own monastery. Uh, and so it's an opportunity to, uh, to reflect on how uh, he raised up local leaders, which is always, I think, a, a test. Are we, are we forming? Do we love Christ's church enough that we care about who's going to lead it when we're gone. Uh, and so uh, there's there's some reflection there as well. That's really interesting. Can you comment a little bit on to sort of the development of, like people talk about like uh, Celtic spirituality and things like that. Like where is that reaching all the way back to Patrick or is that sort of, um, like where did that come from? Yeah, I'm, I'm laughing only because I think about how many of our fellow residents, Matt, in the senior home one day will have a sagging Celtic cross tattoo they regret from the 1990s. <laughs> right. So uh, because uh, gravity takes hold, brother, gravity takes hold. <laughs> I often think it'll be like, you remember the uh, back cover of the old Mad magazines where you'd fold it over and make a new image? Yeah. I'm a little worried about what we'll see in the seniors home one day. <laughs> Um, so yeah, Celtic Christianity, right? 1990s. Wow. That was huge. That was huge. And I think, um, you know, what's interesting is that, uh, you absolutely can talk about an indigenous Celtic spirituality, pre-contact Christianity. Absolutely. hundred percent. That's the Druid. That's the Druid religion. Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of what I saw in the 1990s with Celtic crosses and so forth, uh, intricate artwork that we would see in the Book of Kells or Book of Armagh, um, that is a solidly Christian. So, you know, the, the Celtic Christian tradition um, is not kind of uh, what I would call I need a hug theology, just kind of um, floating in, in the air. It's deeply grounded. Uh, in the revelation of Father, Son, and Spirit, right? So it, it's deeply triune. 
and we have actually, we have the creed that Patrick taught built into his own, um, into his own confession, which is the primary document by his own hand that we work with uh, to try and figure out what he was up to. And, and the confession that's built in there, he does a confession of faith that essentially was the early creed at that time that he would have been taught uh, when he went to, to seminary at Auxerre. And so it's a very solid uh, orthodox, <clears throat> orthodox Christian leader, but someone who's nimble enough who knew how to translate that Roman Christian faith into a new context. So the whole Celtic Christian movement, I think, is wonderful. Uh, it's, um, it has really important connections to creation, um, as long as we don't um, kind of arbitrarily remove or artificially divorce the Christ-centeredness of Celtic spirituality from kind of a vague, I like to, you know, have squiggle tattoos on my arm kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and I, I actually think that uh, the Celtic Christianity is a, is a good example. Like it's a, it's a way to look at what, an, a, what gospel in culture Mm-hmm. It's a great example of gospel in culture. That's right. Um, because it is a step out of Christendom, yeah. right? So yeah. it doesn't seem as though Patrick ported in yeah. the Christendom model into yes. Ireland and tried to replicate that. That's exactly um, right. That's exactly He actually right. imported the gospel and tried to incarnate the gospel in the culture. And the result of that ended up being Celtic Christianity. Exactly. Um, and so I think it's a great example to kind of look, I don't think we should just take, oh, and now we should have a bunch of Celtic Christians running around uh, Canada or, or the U.S. Yeah. Um, but we might be able to see that and there might be helpful things or helpful prayers. We might yeah. be excited about some of those things. But the real question is, well, what does the gospel look like in, uh, on the ground in our lives? Um, if Celtic Christianity is going to teach us anything, I hope it's that. I, I, I love I love how you're kind of summing that up. And and I think what's so fascinating, you're 100% right, 100% right, that he, while trained by the Roman Christian church uh, already in the midst of Christendom, did not take that and impose it on, on Ireland. Um, he, I love how you say he brought the gospel. And I'm curious about, too, how as, as a preacher's kid... Uh, who had a cultural Christian faith yeah. with that, um, it is interesting, isn't it, that he had to go to a place where Christianity did not exist or thrive in order to be able to hear God speak. Mm. And so it makes me curious, but where are those places in our post-Christendom pluralistic Canada today that God is speaking to people? Uh, and we see it here at the seminary. I, we have more and more adult converts, for example, coming to study theology, who when we're teaching, I have to be very careful. You can't make the assumption that people have a Sunday school background. A lot of people, uh, God got a hold of them uh, in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s with no church background. But they have some pretty amazing conversion stories, right? which is a bit uh, uncomfortable for some to hear, but I think it's wonderful. It's evidence of the Holy Spirit. So Patrick converted in a so-called uh, pre-Christian or pagan uh, landscape. Um, I think that's a gift to him when it comes to sharing the gospel later in his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, this has been really great, Ross. I've uh, 
we're we're kind of out of time. Um, but <laughs> it's always good for for a long time. Um, if people are looking for your book, and it seems as though like I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I know uh, it only just came out, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it seems like it's a pretty accessible book as well. It's not. Uh, I know you're an academic, but I don't think this is reading. It doesn't read. I read a little bit of the preview. It doesn't read as an academic book. Like this is. Mm-hmm. This is for anyone who wants to just kind of engage with some of these uh, conversations around what it means to incarnate the gospel um, yeah. and even just learn about Patrick because it's just a fascinating story. So I would say absolutely that's true. I tend to write for uh, for folks who are interested in the faith, but but not necessarily the academic community. Yeah. I, I do that a bit in other ways, but um, I, I love creating resources for the church. Yeah. And so this one even has uh, study reflection questions at the end. Uh, it could be a session starter, uh, take a chapter every month, you could do it as a, as a book study. And I would say to your listeners, if you do, um, reach out to me. Let me know how you're using it. It's available on Amazon uh, for purchase. Makes a great uh, wedding gift, uh, wedding anniversary <laughs> gift, uh, birthday <laughs> gift, uh, baptism gift. How do, people, uh, how do people get in touch with you, Ross? Yeah, so just uh, email me at rlockhart, that's R-L-O-C-K-H-A-R-T, at s-t-andrews, with an s, dot e-d-u, or just Google Ross Lockhart St. Andrews Hall, it'll pop up. Yeah, or I even noticed if you Google Ross Lockhart Vancouver, you are you are the one. Wow, amazing. Well, uh, I won't let it go to my head because normally with publications, my mother in Winnipeg uh, buys a copy and it's more out of duty than anything else. So you you could double my sales by buying a copy. (laughs) Double the Winnipeg sales. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I I was thinking too, as well, just before we say goodbye, like we probably needed to provide a glossary for this uh, podcast, like um, uh, for this episode for our American listeners. So things like talking about Steinbeck and talking about the TSN turning point. Awesome. Um, Right. (laughs) That's okay. Steinbeck, a small town in rural Manitoba in Canada. Uh, (laughs) The TSN turning point. TSN is the sports network. It's kind of our equivalent of ESPN in Canada. Well said. If you were were wondering, what are these two Canadians talking about uh, today? We didn't even mention Tuke or Poutine. Oh, there we go. Yeah, well, we'll have to, we'll maybe have you back on as uh, as another guest sometime to talk about Canadianisms, eh? That would be a pleasure, sir. It's always great to see you and to chat and blessings to your listeners. I'm really glad that you're running these podcasts. They're blessing many people. Great to talk to you again. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You can always go to spiritualityforordinarypeople.com and you can find all of the old episodes and all of the show notes for those episodes. Also, you can find the podcast on iTunes and I would love it if you could leave a review there. That means so much to me and it helps the podcast become more visible so that others can find these interviews. Thanks again for listening. Take care.